that's great and I hear the kingdom of candle flame again for you. And you are there, we all do need the candle flame because you bring the fire itself. So this week I worked with him, I'm not excusing that for very first of all, that last week, and we were called greatly to pay on this is it spiritual poetry? Yeah, well, I hope it will be. What, about, what I'm about to do this evening, I will either be condemned and never be invited to this place again, or else you will accept what I'm going to offer you as a humble contribution to your understanding of a very important and I think significant world civilization and culture. By this I mean the culture and civilization of my people, the Arabs. I'm talking about the Arabs. I'm not talking about Muslims or Jews or Christians. I'm talking about a people, a culture and a language. I think it's very important. Having lit this candle reminds me of a poem I wrote once and I will translate. In Arabic it goes as follows. Sallaytu laki rak'atayn wadharaftu shawqan wa tawqan ilayki dam'atayn wawqattu laki shamatayn. It starts with, uh, I put one line before the other. I said prayers for you twice. Now there is a word raka'a in Arabic which means going down on your knees. So this is the way that the prayer is said on the knees. It's very significant to it because that is a humbling posture. One does this before the powers that are in control of the entire universe. And uh, it goes on to say, I lit for you two candles. That's what bought it. I also shed for you in yearning and longing for you two tears. With the first to write my name, with the second to write yours. But the two tears got mixed up and I couldn't distinguish between them. And Almighty God, with his eternal finger wrote with the with the letters in tears, the words, and I read what he wrote, and it was his own name, and I read it, and it said, "Love." The idea was to write two names; couldn't be possible. God wrote his own name with two tears. And then the word in Arabic is al-mahabba, which is love. Thank you. Tonight, really, I want to talk about Arabic literature and Arabic poetry and to convey to you 
tremendous spiritual background from which all this poetry, all this language has emanated. I myself believe, and I'm not a Muslim, that the only revelation which expressed itself in any form in which God Almighty can be expressed in form is the Quran. In the same way as the Logos in Christianity is made into flesh and blood, the Logos in Islam is made into a book. It is still a material thing, although the Muslims say, oh, it's a different, I don't believe that. It's still a material thing, it's a book, you see. But God interprets himself in form of a book, words, language. In Christianity, it's in flesh and blood. It is in the figure of Christ. And in fact, I see both. I remember when, as an Arab boy, my father took me after I had spent seven years of my life reading the Quran and perfecting my knowledge of Arabic and of its literature, I went to an Anglican school in Jerusalem called St. George's. Couldn't be more English than that. I began to wear a blazer and put on a cap. It was marvelous. And I entered the school chapel. On the wall, I saw for the first time, perhaps, although once you are in a country like Palestine at the time, you saw the crucifixes all over the place. But somehow, in that hallowed precincts, the crucified one, for the first time, spoke to me. Come here. Beautiful. Marvelous. He said, this is part of my being, my culture, and I want to reach out and have him. Why should I be deprived of him? What a beautiful man. What a beautiful gesture. Well, I spent that time at St. George's. As a matter of fact, I spent 11 years of my life at St. George's. I became captain of the cricket team. I suppose that's why I opted for English literature later in life. Because once you understand and play cricket, you somehow understand the English mind and the English soul. Of course, I had to be tamed to play cricket the way my teachers wanted me to play. And I never forget how my headmaster called me to his office. And for one hour, I had to practice how to clap with dignity and not be too Middle Eastern in our approach. I did that. I was very fortunate to come very close to the teachings of Jesus Christ because I did scripture at school and I was wondering and I wonder now how fortunate I must have been to have had this 
marvelous education in Islamic studies and then be introduced with this marvelous education in Christian studies. If you tell me which is your tradition, I would say both. It must be also remembered that in Islam there is the whole of Christianity. The divisions are man-made. The truth is universal. I think Arabic literature at its best is universal. It is spiritual. It is a literature that is based because the language itself for some reason, don't ask me why, for some reason this language has a certain magic, a certain power, a certain richness that for us as Arabs it is our identity and our whole being. I have never spoken about these things before. This is the first time, perhaps, in my life that I really stand before you and begin to take layer after layer of everything that has accumulated over the last 63, 64 years of my life. And it is this sense of universality, you see, that I find it everywhere in Arabic literature. I find it in the greatest of all the literary expressions in Arabic, in the Holy Quran, which indeed is for many people an epicissima verba. But Arabic Again, I want to make that point because it's relevant to what the literature is like. It's so rich in nouns and adjectives that eloquence was defined as the accord between expression and the reality as presented to the consciousness, the role of the literary artist was that of selection from an infinity of possibilities of the proper words for the proper ideas. We call in Arabic literature adab. The word means courtesy. The whole idea of the word adab is that it is a special form in which one communicates, by which one fulfills the highest degree of the nobility and the greatness of the human being. For me, as a student of literature, this has always been a matter that was taken for granted. 
I came to the study of English literature with a literature already that had emphasized for me what an enormous responsibility it was for me to study literature. It was not a matter of taking a degree or getting a PhD. As I have grown older and hopefully wiser in certain ways, more foolish in others, because if you grow too wise, it's dangerous, and if you grow too foolish, it's dangerous. So it's a bit of balance of both to remain human. I realize how unimportant the degree was, how important the whole experience of being exposed to Yeats and the great tradition of English poetry. Now, I find similarities between English poetry and Arabic poetry. Again, I've never shared this with anyone. Perhaps tonight is the night when I will render all the secrets of my heart. Well, English, and I'm talking about the English because that is the word that is associated with this island as it began in literature to grow. Maybe the Scots will be terribly angry with me and so will be the Welsh, but I'm not talking about Celtic literature, I'm talking about English literature. A literature and a language that was forged as a result of the contribution of more than one race. You see, this is very important to remember. It was not English only, but it was a several variety that enriched what we had as English. Now, the Puritan movement, of course, was a disaster to a certain extent because it really banished everything, or attempted to banish, everything that had to do with emotions, with feelings. Now, of course, most of you who are perhaps professors of English here might criticize me for saying these things, but uh, please allow me to say what I think in the way I look at your literature, because I'm sure you have every right to say what you think when you look at our literature. And I am, of course, in no way a supporter of Edward Said. I think that uh, what he says in his book Orientalism, and then in the more recent book on colonialism, is not true. It's propaganda. And it's unfair. Because we owe a great deal to the Western mind and to Western scholars primarily French, English, and German, who have assiduously labored to present our language and our literature to their peoples. And I would say that 90% was outstanding work. The 10%, you can forgive that. You don't create a whole issue 
Oh no. I cannot see how it is possible for anybody to write anything on Sufi literature, the greatest and the most important output of Arabic literature that has ever been, without reading Mansignon in French. Francis Richard Burton, in his translation of the Arabian Nights, in his footnotes, footnotes, has the most accurate record of the social and cultural life of my people in the 19th century. There is no comparable Arabic book. So, you know, it's, it's easy for us. These colonialists are terrible. We are all terrible. And we are all marvelous. When we occupied the Arabs, you remember? 7th century, we came out, what did we do? Swept across the whole of North Africa. 700 years in Spain. We were in France, defeated at the Battle of Poitiers. In some cases, we were a colonial power. No different than the British or the French, or the Portuguese, or the Spanish. Of course, in our history books, we say we are kinder, we were kinder, we are more generous. We might have been, and we might not have been. An invader is an invader. Fine. You see, all this burden out of the window. Human beings, our history is shared by all of us. Each one of us, you see, belongs to a tradition and a culture. Nobody is cleaner than the other, nobody is worse either. I think our whole understanding of history must be in this context. We have to read, rewrite our books. This literature I'm going to talk about tonight, I hope I'll get somewhere. What is it? Why? Why am I talking like this? Yeats, let me tell you what. Yeats clarified for me all of the things that I came to understand about my own literature and language. Listen to him. In his uh, collected works of 1908, I, I always think, what a tremendous courage for a poet, still in mid-career, to publish all his works, collected works, you see. But that was Yeats. And I think he justified the fact that he did this earlier in life. The poetry of exaltation will be always the highest, but when men lose their poetic feeling for ordinary life and cannot write poetry of ordinary things, their exalted poetry is likely to lose its strength of exaltation. 
in the way men cease to build beautiful churches when they have lost happiness in building shops. If instead of all these concrete buildings which have no windows, it's very strange, you know, you go into a building, it's all no windows, no sunlight. <laughs> we had uh, spent more time on these supermarkets to make them more beautiful, perhaps would have made change, but this is not the point here. It is the poetry of exaltation. If I were to summarize Arabic literature and Arabic poetry, I would say it's the literature and poetry of exaltation. I want first to share with you a Sufi incantation. Author anonymous. Document I found in one of these yellow books. No date. No Publisher, my God, how do you put this in a PhD thesis? You see, no publisher, no author, no title, just a book with incantations. This is how it starts. Just read you, get the feel of Arabic. Ajaban lil muhibbi, kaifayna? Qum. قم يا حبيبي لما The question is, oh, how surprising that the beloved can enjoy sleep. Arise, arise, my beloved. Why are you asleep? طالب الجنة لا ينام. The seeker of paradise does not sleep. قم قم يا حبيبي لبتنام Rise, arise, my beloved, do not sleep. So there is a refrain that goes, which I will not repeat as I go along, and then line after line, this universality, this, it is the world of nature, the animals, the birds, the inanimate and the animate worlds, the human beings, Everybody participates in this celebration, this exaltation, if you like. Khaliqul layli la yanam, the creator of the night does not sleep. Qum qum, ya habibi, limatanam. Arise, arise, get up. My beloved, why do you sleep? Allah arshu wal kursiyu la yanam, the throne, meaning the throne of God and the chair, which is both. There is a reference here because there is the mention of the word kursi, meaning a chair in the Qur'an. So it's brought here. The tablet and the pen do not sleep. Arise, arise. I'll go through the first lines. All of heaven, all of the kingdom of God, do not sleep. So get up again. Ashamsu al Qamaru Layana. The sun and the moon do not sleep. Al Ardu was Sama Ulayanam. Neither earth nor heaven sleep. And Najmu was Shajarulayana. 
the stars and the trees do not sleep. Al-Barru al-Bahru la yanam. The land and the sea do not sleep. Al-Jannatu al-Naru la yanam. Neither heaven nor hell sleep. Al-Tayru al-Wahshu la yanam. Neither bird nor beast sleep. Qum qum ya habibi lima tanam. Of course the refrain goes on. Al-Aashiku al-Ma'ashuku la yanam. The beloved and the loved one. The loved one and the lover do not sleep. Al-ishq wal-mahabbatu la yanam. There are two words here, ishq and mahabba. Both are words meaning love, but because Arabic has this richness, this variety of expression, the word love has 50 different words in the language. When Khalil Gibran was writing, I will be talking about Gibran next week, was writing a poem, a love poem. I think it was Mary Haskell who walked in. She found him in, a, in great agitation. She said, Khalil, what is the problem? He said, I don't know what to do. In Arabic, I have 50 words to choose. Here, I have only one or two. But ishq, really the word in Arabic, which is now unfortunately not used in the proper sense, means divine love. Mahabba is human love. Arabic has this distinction between the two. Of course, today, when they say a mistress or a lover, in the more mundane sense of the word, they say ashiq. But the word is, in Arabic really, divine love. Ishq. It's a very technical word. It's a special word. So he says, al-ishq wal-mahabba which means divine love and human love. Al-laylu wa naharu la yanam, the sun, the day and the night do not sleep. And then he goes on, he says, Al-mawla la yanam, the creator, God, the master of all, does not sleep. Adamu safiyullahi la yanam, Adam, who was honest towards his creator, does not go to sleep. Ibrahim Khalilullahi layana. Abraham, the beloved of God, does not go to sleep. Musa Kalimullahi layana. Moses, the one who spoke to God face to face, does not go to sleep. Isa Ruhullahi layana. Jesus, the Spirit of God, does not go to sleep. Rasulullahi layana. The Messenger of God, meaning Muhammad, does not go to sleep. This call for being alert, awake, to receive the gifts of life, the creator. Am I making any sense? Oh, good. I think it was T.R. Head, who mentioned in one of his lectures, I am not sure of my, my source, but uh, he said that when somebody asked uh, what was the great quality of Yeats's poetry, the answer was its wisdom. And in fact, really, the word in Arabic for wisdom is hikmah, hakim.
meaning the wise man. But it's also a meaning that relates to healing. So, we say Hakim, meaning a doctor who treats your body. Hakim, a wise person, obviously, who deals with other things. So, Hikmah is of the soul. In the Quran, there is this marvelous verse. وَمَنْ يُؤْتَ الْحِكْمَةِ يُؤْتَ خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا And he who is endowed with wisdom has been generously, generously endowed by all gifts. This wisdom is in the Qasida itself. You see, Arabic poetry at the beginning was poem by poem. It's called Qasida. Every line is independent. It doesn't have to really be connected. It's like a necklace, bead with bead. Of course, it has the rhyme pattern is such that it has to rhyme endings all right down. It's quite tough to write 150 lines, each line ending with the same rhyme as you go along. It's not easy, it's difficult. But they managed it because of the richness of the language arrived. This wisdom you will find in the Mu'allaqat. You will find it even when someone is angry and uh, we have something called hija', which is satire in its most perhaps powerful form, or rathaa', which is eulogy when you are writing a eulogy, or even when you are describing nature, or even when you are talking about your own feelings, and above all, matters of the heart. Abu Atahir, who lived in the 8th century AD, has these marvelous lines. Every summary has a trend. Every question has an answer. Every event has an hour. Every action has its account. Every ascent has its limit. Every man has his book of fate. Having lived eight years of a long and eventful life, Zuhair ibn Abi Sulma, about whom one Arab critic wrote, كَانَ يَذُوبُ فِي الشَّعْرِ وَالشَّعْرُ يَذُوبُ فِيهِ He used to melt in poetry, is exactly what it means, and poetry melted within him. He wrote these lines at the end of his life. I am weary of life's burden. Well, a man may weary be after 80 years, and this much now is manifest to me. Death is like a night-blind camel stumbling on. The smitten die, but the others age and wax 
in weakness whom he passes by. He that often deals with folk in unkind fashion, underneath they will trample him and make him feel the sharpness of their teeth. He that hath enough and over and is niggard with his pelf will be hated of his people and left free to praise himself. He alone who with fair actions ever fortifies his fame wins it fully. Blame will find him out unless he shrinks from blame. He that for his cistern's guarding trusts not in his own stout arm sees it ruined. He must harm his foe or he must suffer harm. He that fears the bridge of death across it finally is driven though he span as with a ladder all the space twixt earth and heaven. He that will not take the lance's butt end while he has the chance must thereafter be contented with a spike end of the lance. He that keeps his word is blamed not. He whose heart prepareth straight to the sanctuary of duty never needs to hesitate. He that hides abroad to strangers doth account his friends, his foes. He that honors not himself lacks honor wheresoever he goes. Be a man's true nature that it will, that nature is revealed to his neighbors, let him fancy as he may that is concealed. The line that uh, remains with me, now you must, one of these lines must have remained with you. Let me tell you, now here you see it, you have a live Arab in front of you. Let me tell you where this hits me. And then you understand what I mean about this literature and poetry. It hits me here. He that honors not himself lacks honor wheresoever he goes. Honor. Everything in our literature and in our culture seems to emanate and end in this one word. And honor is closely linked with another quality which honors one. Generosity. You may suffer from all the weaknesses you can imagine. Perhaps in the eyes of some people you may be the most despicable of men or women. But you have one quality. Generosity. That redeems you. But you see, if you were generous, you cannot be anything but a noble human being. Because generosity, which is calm, jude, one of the attributes of Almighty God in the Quran, the 99 names and attributes, al karim the generous one. Generosity is part and parcel of desert life. If 
you are, it may you have marvelous clothes. There was, at the age of five, my father was very anxious that I should be in the desert during my summer holidays. For one thing, to get the pronunciation of Arabic right. Allah See what I'm talking about. That ability to speak the language beautifully was essential. How can you recite or declaim the most sacred of all the arts, poetry? I'm not talking about the religious book. I'm talking about poetry. How can you recite it if your pronunciation was not adequate to bring every shade of meaning? And Arabic, you know, is a very powerful language. I'm not bragging, I beg your pardon. Just sharing with you It is amazing. Some people attribute this to religious. They say, well, this is the tradition of Islam. I really cannot question that because there are people who have this feeling and it's absolutely right. For me and for most Arabs, it is not really important to understand the words, but the rhythm, the music, the power. It is... Uh, related in our history that when Umar al-Khattab, perhaps the cruelest of uh, the pre-Islamic adversaries of the Prophet Muhammad, the story about how he became a Muslim is very interesting. He, he was about to enter his daughter's home who had espoused Islam and he heard certain verses being recited. He paused and listened. He didn't understand a word of what was said. As a matter of fact, the language of the Quran was such a miraculous event that not everybody who was conversant in Arabic, people recognized the miracle, but not everybody understood because the Quran itself also being the revelation of God had not followed every rule of Arabic grammar that was known at the time. So there was this. However, he was so struck by the power of these words that he went and he said, What were you reading? What were you reading? Terrified of her father. She didn't want to live. Nothing, nothing, nothing. He insisted. So she said, it is the Quran. He said, this is your book? She said, yes. He said, I believe. See? This is how he became the power of the language. It was he, Umar ibn Khattab, who said, advising his people, he said, بِالْعَرَبِيَةِ يَثْبُتُ الْعَقْلِ وَتَزِيدُ الْمَرُوءَةِ Through the study of Arabic, the mind finds its balance. The word yatbut in Arabic means to stand still, balanced on 
solid graph. That's yesterday. You can't check it even like the table. So, how the mind it is balanced. Balanced. Tazidul Marwa and the attributes, the great attributes of magnanimity. Marwa means magnanimity, increase. You know, over the years, a line here, a line there, you can imagine how old this is. I said, what would be the best thing? Share with you some of the things that... Yeah. You know what the word shar in Arabic means? Put. You see, I don't know whether it hits you the same way it hits me. Let me explain to you why. The word poet in English comes from Greek origin, correct? Uh, creator. It's not 100% out of the soil of the language itself, so it's borrowed. With our word of poet, it's not borrowed. It's from the language. And it means this, the one who feels. It's, you have to feel. That's poetry. I don't know how other ways you can write it or know it or learn it. I know they try to teach you at university to have full stops and graphs and something even measure poetry. I don't know this I.A. Richards, uh, Catherine, you know, God save us, don't ever introduce your students to this kind of thing. You'd never, you'd never teach them poetry. It will kill it! And that's what English departments since Kathleen has left them, been doing, killing the literature, the poetry. Because they're trying to, what do they try to do? Quantify, classify. You see, fragment what cannot be classified or quantified or fragmented, but which deals with human feeling, with a human spirit, with a human soul. How can you analyze this? The only thing you can say, it, I feel it in this way. It has enriched my life. I will be retiring in a few years' time, so I'm not going to be appointed to any chair of English, rest assured of that. Nor do I desire to do that. Hmm? <laughs> Without high virtues by poetry laid down, no glorious deed by men can be achieved. The word really that he used, sannaha, means legislate. The poets legislate. And this reminds us of someone who in the English tradition too had almost said the same thing. A few centuries later, Shelley, the unacknowledged, you see, they are the unacknowledged of the world. They are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. That's Shelley. And I said at the beginning that the Puritan movement 
had all this, the escape from the Puritan movement was really in poetry. And so English poetry is passionate. You see? It's poetry of feeling. It's powerful for the simple reason that it rejected the tyranny and the censure of those who run the marketplace. The marketplace. The market. You've heard this word so often, I don't need to tell you who are the high priests and priestesses of the marketplace. The marketplace, when it is a market to sell and buy, it has no values. But the marketplace, when it is a place for prophets and poets to sing and to teach, it becomes an important place. Where did Jesus teach his words? In the marketplace. Where did Muhammad teach his message? In the marketplace. Where did Moses stand up and claim what he claimed? In the marketplace. Where did Socrates teach his wisdom? In the marketplace. Where did the Arabs have the greatest day? In a marketplace called Suqi Ukaf, the market of Ukaf. Was never in a university room, ever. Listen to this as well. This is Abu Tammam, 10th century poet. In yukdu, in yukdi, mutraful ikha fa'inana nasri wa nagdu fi ikha intalidi. Aw naftariq nasaban yu'allifu baynana adabun aqamnahu maqam al-walidi. Aw yakhtalif ma'u al-wusali fama'una azbun tahaddara min ghamaman wahidi. A poet needs another poet. He says... there is a separate entity. The one thing that makes us kith and kin is that we both have adopted the same father. Adab. Literature. Poetry. I have asked uh, Kathleen and Tony to share with us selection of this poetry that has wisdom, that has passion, that has feeling, that has this sense of universality. You know, I cannot imagine how any Arab who is well steeped in Arabic poetry, who understands it, who has learned how to distinguish the great poetry from the less great poetry could be anything but a universalist.
a believer of all things. When they finish, I will conclude with a few words. So, please go ahead and start with Catherine. Would you like to read one, one, so that the voice alternates? Yes. Tell us which we should read first. Really, I didn't put them in any order, so you can do what you like. I don't know what this is called. Yes, uh, this is Ibn al-Farid, and this uh, is a Sufi poem. Lo, from behind the veil mysterious, the forms of things are shown in every guise of manifold appearance. And in them, an all-wise providence hath joined what stands opposed in nature. Mute they utter speech, inert they move, and void of splendour shine. And so it comes that now thou laughest in glee, then weepest anon, like mother or dead child, and mournest if they sigh for pleasure lost, and tremblest if they sing with music's joy. Birds warbling on the boughs delight thine air, the while their sweet notes sadden thee within. Thou wanderest of their voices and their words, expressive, unintelligible tongues. On land, the camels cross the wilderness. At sea, the ships run swiftly through the deep. And thou beholdest two armies, one on land, on sea another, multitudes of men, clad for their bravery in iron mail and fenced about with points of sword and spear. The land troops march on horseback or on foot, bold cavaliers and stubborn infantry. The warriors of the sea, some mount on deck, some climb the mast like lances, tall and straight. Here in assault they smite with gleaming swords, there thrust with tough brown shafts of quivering spears part drowned with fire of arrows shot in showers, part burned with floods of steel that pierce like flames. These rushing onward, offering their lives, those reeling broken beneath the shame of rout, and catapults thou seest hurling stones against strong fortresses and citadels to ruin them, and apparitions strange of naked viewless spirits thou mayst espy that wear no friendly shape of humankind, for genies love not men. And in the stream, the fisher casts his net and draws forth fish, and craftily the fowler sets a snare that hungry birds may fall in it for corn. And ravening monsters wreck the ships at sea, and lions in the jungle rend their prey. And in the air, some birds, and in the wild, some animals, hunt others. And thou seest many a form besides, whose names I pass, putting my trust in samples choice, though few. Regard now what is this that lingers not before thine eye, and in a moment fades. All thou beholdest is the act of one in solitude, but closely veiled is he. Let him but lift the screen, 
No doubt remains. The forms have vanished. He alone is all. And thou, illumined, knowest that by his light thou findest his actions in the senses' night. This poem is by Rabia, a woman mystical poet. O oh, my joy and my desire and my refuge, my friend and my sustainer and my goal, thou art my intimate, and longing for thee sustains me. Were it not for thee, O oh, my life and my friend, how I should have been distraught over the spaces of the earth. How many favours have been bestowed, and how much hast thou given me of gifts and grace and assistance. Thy love is now my desire and my bliss, and has been revealed to the eye of my heart that was a thirst. I have none beside thee who dost make the desert blossom. Thou art my joy, firmly established within me. If thou art satisfied with me, then, O desire of my heart, my happiness has appeared. <coughs> this Abu Ala al-Ma'arri was the blind, the Milton of Arabia. He was known to be very pessimist uh, in his uh, approach, but he was also aware of the uh, uh, tremendous universality. He is the one who questioned, he has these lines do not appear here, he says, وَفِي اللَّاذِقِيَّةِ أَسْمَعُ ضَجَّةً بَيْنَ أَحْمَدُ وَالْمَسِيحِ ذَاكَ بِنَاقُوسٍ يَدُقُّ وَذَاكَ بِمِئْذَنَةٍ يَصِيحِ فَيَا لَيْتَ عَمْرِي مَا هُوَ صَحِيحِ He says, in Ladakia, it's the name of a place in Syria, I hear someone peeling the church bell. And I hear the Mu'azzin declaiming, inviting people to prayer. As though there is a contest between Christ and Muhammad. And I pause, who is more right than the other? So the, he was the great poet of doubt, the blind poet of Arabia, uh, almost Miltonic. These are some of his lines, and great wisdom, too. <coughs> Upon the threshing floor of life I burn. Beside the winnower a word to learn, and only this. Man's of the soil and sun, and to the soil and sun he shall return. And like a spider's house or sparrow's nest, the sultan's palace, though upon the crest of glory's mountain, Soon or late must go. I, all abodes to ruin are addressed. So too, the creeds of man, the one prevails until the other comes. And this one fails when that one triumphs. I, the lonesome world, will always want the latest fairy tales. Seek not the tavern of belief, my friend, until the Saki's there their morals mend. A lie imbibed, a thousand lies will breed, and thou'lt become a Saki in the end. By fearing whom I trust, I find my way to truth. 
By trusting wholly, I betray the trust of wisdom. Better far is doubt, which brings the false into the light of day. Or wilt thou come as have with those who make rugs of the rainbow, rainbows of the snake, snakes of a staff and other wondrous things? The burning thirst a mirage cannot slay. Religion is a maiden veiled in prayer, whose bridal gifts and dowry those who care can buy in Mutakelam's shop of words. But I for such a dirham cannot spare. Why linger here? Why turn another page? Oh, seal with doubt the whole book of the age. Doubt everyone, even him, the seeming slave of righteousness, and doubt the canting sage. This poem is by Avicenna, the great philosopher whom I share. And it's called Poem of the Soul. And it is addressed, it seems, to the body. It descended upon me from out the regions above that exalted, ineffable, glorious, heavenly dove. T'was concealed from the eyes of all those who its nature would ken. Yet it wears not a veil, and is ever apparent to men. Unwilling it sought thee and joined thee, and yet, though it grieve, it is like to be still more unwilling thy body to leave. It resisted and struggled, and would not be tamed in haste, yet it joined thee, and slowly grew used to this desolate waste, Till forgotten at length as I ween Were its haunts and its troth In the heavenly gardens and groves Which to leave it was loath Until when it entered the dee Of its downward descent And to earth to the sea Of its centre unwillingly went The eye of infinity smote it and lo, it was hurled midst the signposts and ruined abodes of this desolate world. It weeps when it thinks of its home and the peace it possessed, with tears welling forth from its eyes without pausing or rest, and with plaintive mourning it broodeth like one bereft, or such trace of its home as the fourfold winds have left. Thick nets detain it, and strong is the cage whereby it is held from seeking the lofty and spacious sky, until when the hour of its homeward flight draws near, and tis time for it to return to its ampler sphere, it carols for joy, for the veil is raised, and it spies such things as cannot be witnessed by waking eyes. On a lofty height doth it warble its songs of praise, for even the lowliest being doth knowledge raise, and so it returneth, aware of all hidden things in the universe, while no stain to its garment clings. Now why from its perch on high was it cast like this, to the lowest nadir's gloomy and drear abyss, was it God who cast it forth for some purpose wise, concealed to the keener seeker's inquiring eyes? Then is its descent a discipline 
wise but stern, that the things that it hath not heard it thus may learn. So tis she whom fate doth plunder until her star setteth at length in a place from its rising far, like a gleam of lightning which over the meadows shone and as though it ne'er had been in a moment is gone. Beautiful. Beautiful. Very beautiful. He's a great philosopher. Henri Corbin, of course, has uh, written on him, has he not? Wonderful books. Uh, Corbin, we have often published a review of Terry Nelson. Very great philosopher himself. Avicenna was one of the, those. Sorovardi and Avicenna, I think, the two he knows about. It's a, this is, of course, this is a poem which talks about the immortality of the soul and the fact that when we are in this body, we are, our soul is like the bird in the cage. How can then the soul be dismayed or sad or angry once it's given its freedom? And it's, uh, it's a marvelous uh, celebration, in fact, of the soul of man and it's also a tremendous reassurance that death is not the end of anything really it's the beginning of a new birth that is to come I think as far uh, again maybe religion will help others to arrive at this understanding. In my case, of course, religion did help because I am a religious man at heart, like Einstein. If you believe in the mystery of life, then you are religious, <laughs> you see. But uh, I arrived this understanding through the poetry, the literature such as this. What cannot be avoided? What is a must? When I was on my deathbed, uh, when I had this heart problem two years ago, I spoke with my creator. I said to him, this life has never been mine, it has always been yours. Do not do me a favor. Whatever you decide, I accept. It is this sense of resignation, I think, that makes life easy to bear. I think this is through the poetry again and again there is this emphasis on well Hamlet I quoted this earlier here with privately but I'll share it with you there are more things in earth and heaven than is dreamt of in your philosophy Horatio you see Horatio was the logician the man who knew numbers scientist you know what you cannot see under the microscope this cannot be true well, that was the answer. There are many other things. Now, um, of course, we'll end with one more poem from each who have been, uh, of the readers, and I'm very grateful to them. But let me end by saying one or two things. You know, among the, the lines of poetry that, for me, have meant a lot is, is these two lines that come in Arabic and I, I, I think they're marvelous. They go as follows. 
ذو العقل يشقى في النعيم بعقله وأخو الجهالة في الشقاوة ينعم which means really he who thinks deeply and with understanding suffers even when he is in the most comfortable of situations but he who is unable to understand would be frivolous and most probably happy in a negative way at the time of calamity and great trouble. Another of the great lines is لَيْسَ كُلُّ مَا يُعْرَفْ يُقَالْ وَلَا كُلُّ مَا يُقَالْ قَدْ حَانَ وَقْتُهُ وَلَا كُلُّ مَا قَدْ حَانَ وَقْتُهُ قَدْ حَضَرَ أَهْلُهُ Not everything that a man knoweth can be disclosed, nor can everything that he can disclose be regarded as timely, nor can every timely utterance be considered as suited to the capacity of those who hear it. These are things that remained with me throughout my life, enriched, perhaps, the way I look at things. Lines of the love poetry in particular has been responsible to a great extent to enrich my life and really to give meaning to the greatest of all the loves that I experienced. In fact, and I'm not saying this, the woman is not here, so I'm saying it behind her back, was my wife. When I fell in love with her at the age of 19, she was 17, it was all this tradition of Arabic poetry that made that love something meaningful. I don't know whether if the poetry wasn't there, I would have been the same, or would have felt the same way, or would have really developed my affection for this marvelous woman in the way it has done. And I'm reminded, you know, how we also love for us is, is something that is extremely honorable. It's honorable in a way that you don't sometimes even mention the name of your beloved because this is not the proper way. And so you find in Arabic literature so much of the poetry addressed to a woman called Layla. And everybody thinks it was by Majnun. No, three-quarters of the lines that have been written by, by poets who, because they didn't want to name their beloved, they used the name of the one who is beloved by all. But one particular line which uh, I was reminded of after 30 years it came back to me. It was uh, after my illness and uh, for some reason my wife had to go back to Lebanon to deal with some of our affairs there. I was left alone in Switzerland and I was very upset and very sad that she was not there and it was, you know, at these times you are, you are. And uh, the lines, which I'll share with you in a minute, went off like that. Oh heart, didn't you promise that if I stopped loving her, I was angry, you know, that you would also stop loving her? Talking to my heart. Didn't you? Didn't I tell you? If I stop loving her, 
You will stop loving her. That was an agreement between us. And then I asked the question. I said, all right, now tell me. I have forgotten her. I don't want to see her. Why is it that whenever I mention her name, you melt? You got the point? In Arabic, of course, it's very beautiful. It's, uh, In ana an hubbi layla tubtu tatubu fama baluka hinama waha ana an hubbiha taibun fama baluka kullama dhukirat tadubu The palm tree has a special meaning to all Arabs, I think, to all those who have been aware of this poetry and the lines of the poet who found himself in Europe, the, the, perhaps the great Abdurrahman al-Dakhil, the handsome uh, caliph who was known to be the Abdurrahman the first, a very marvelous uh, poet in his own right and when he found himself there he said oh why am I he, he, he looks at a palm tree and he says oh palm tree how what in this world brought you here I am like yourself a stranger in a strange land and the Arab youth here is really a stranger. Strange in hand, strange in face, strange in tongue. I have often remembered these when I have traveled. But I must also add that at no time did I feel a stranger reading English poetry in the presence of Yeats or Shakespeare or Shelley or Keats or Byron <coughs> or Kathleen Ray. I would like to end by these two to this one line from Shakespeare. Of all the English poets <laughs> if I were to say who is the most Arab I would say Perhaps Shakespeare, perhaps Shelley. At least Gibran said he's the most oriental of all the oriental English poets. Listen to these lines. I find these almost as though they were said in Arabic much earlier than Shakespeare had done. The poet's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. Let's end with these two points again. Yes, Al-Hallaj. Ah, well, this is a very fascinating poet. He was put to death 
because he said in the marketplace, he is in this coat, meaning God. Well, just before you go, this is a good story. I don't want to you miss it. Never mind, I take five more minutes of your time. I was teaching at the Azhar in the Sudan. Tells the story here about Halaj. The Azhar in Egypt is the religious university. I was teaching English. And when I first went to teach, I was rather, because they were all turban people, you know, and, and I'm not that type. So I said to the Minister of Education, I said, I think you're sending the wrong person. And of course, I am not a Muslim either. I'm a Baha'i, so can you imagine what would uh, the, the sheikhs would do? They would, he said, they would never think that we have sent him anyone who is not a Muslim. It will not even be imagined. I said, all right, fine, this is reassuring. What is, but I said, but why me? He said, you are the only one in the Sudan who doesn't drink. <laughs> well, this were my qualifications. So then I was, I arrived at this Hallowed Mosque, venerable old man of about 80. He receives me, and then he watch this, bends down. In, in Arabic, we only do this to God. No one else. Oh God, I worship you not out of fear of your hell, nor out of any promise that I will be in your paradise. I found you worthy of worship, and that's why I worship you. This is the attitude, you see. No, but the only time you bow down is before him. So this 80-year-old sheikh comes down like this and says, Astaghfirullahaladzim. I ask for forgiveness of Almighty God. I said, he knows. Why is he asking forgiveness? I must have polluted his hand. He knows I'm not... <laughs> but I said nothing. But I noticed that he did this to every Christian man, to every child, to anyone who came to see him or meet him in the street. Astaghfirullah Why is he... Why? But you see, at that time, things were different, of course. We were not, we were not in the modern age yet. A younger man would not ask an older man a question until the time is proper. Or it would be impertinent, it would be discourteous. So I had to abide my time, wait. One day he invites me to lunch. I am at his home, we're sitting on the floor. The food is brought and then he says to me, he said, Ya Waladi, my son, you have a question. And that's why, Mike, you know, it was, Ah, yes, thank you, God. Now I know. I said, please, I forgive me, but I have a question. For the last three, four months, I haven't slept at night. I haven't. Why do you repeat, God forgive my sins, every time you shake the hands of any human being? And he said to me the following. He said, listen, my son. Do you know the story in the Holy Quran when God created man? 
he blew, breathed into him out of his own soul. He said, every human being that stands before me has a portion of God's soul in him. And I fear at my age not to pay the respect and the honor that this portion of God's soul deserves of my part. That's why if I have not done him the honor that I should, I ask for his forgiveness. You reach that level. Well, you have earned eternal life and you have, you are really living in paradise. This is Al-Hallaj. Murder me now, my faithful friend. For in my murder is my life. My death would be to go on living, and my life would be to die. To me, removal of myself would be the noblest gift to give, and my survival in my flesh the ugliest offense, because my life has tarred out my soul among its fading artifacts. So kill me, set aflame my dried-out bones, and when you pass by my remains in their deserted grave, you will perceive the secret of my friend in the inmost folds of what survives. One moment I am a sheik who holds the highest rank, and then I am a little child dependent on a nurse, or sleeping in a box within the brackish earth. My mother gave her father birth, which was a marvel I perceived. And my own daughters, whom I made, became my sisters in this way to me. Not in the world of time, nor through adulteries. So gather all the parts together of the glowing forms of air and fire and pure water, and sow them in unwatered soil, then water it from cups of serving maids and flowing rivulets. And then, when seven days have passed, perfect brown will grow. <coughs> this is by Amin Rihani, relatively modern, but he represented perhaps the leading figure in the Renaissance of Arabic literature at the turn of the century. And uh, he was the forerunner of Gibran. As a matter of fact, Gibran's uh, book, The Prophet, was directly inspired by Amin Rihani's book, The Book of Khalid. He was a universalist, and uh, this is one of his poems. Light, light, may it shine in our hearts, no matter how dark the world. May it stream forth from our hearts, no matter how gloomy the horizons. At night in my lonely hut in the valley is a candle lit. Yet my eye sees all the light in the world and reflects it therein. And if the storm should uproot my heart like a tree and bear it to the mouth of the river, there among the rocks is a cave, an impenetrable haven from the storm. There, too, the light of the sun and the stars. And if the skies become dark and the stars of the planets are seen no more, Yet is there light everlasting within this human heart, 
May light shine in our hearts, no matter how gloomy the horizons. Perhaps this is the message I'd like to leave with you tonight. Yes, the light is there in every man's heart, in every woman's heart. And I will end where I began. For after all, it is the love of God that has been responsible for the creation of the world. In his love, he loved man, so he created him. And man, in turn, when he loves God, can love the rest of the human race. And God's light is like the sun. It warms both the criminal and the innocent alike. It differentiates between no one at all. And these lines of Ibn Arabi bring us to the end of this session. Hopefully next week I shall be talking about Gibran, another universalist, and a very important figure, I think, in the whole East-West relations and world literature, as I call it. It's Ibn al-Arabi, a sheikh, an akbar, the greatest of all the poets of Sufi literature. It is out of this love uh, for God, for his fellow men, for the world, for the worms, for the bees, for the stars, for the moon, for the light, for everything. لَقَدْ صَارَ قَلْبِي قَابِلًا كُلَّ صُورَةٍ فَمَرْعًا لِغُزْلَانٍ وَدَيْرٌ لِرُهْبَانٍ وبيت لأوثان وكعبة طائف وألواح تورات ومصحف قرآني أدين بدين الحب أنا توجهت ركائبه فالحب ديني وإيماني My heart is capable of every form a pasture for gazelles a monastery for monks a place where the idols find refuge as would the pilgrims visiting the holy shrine a place where the holy text of the Qur'an is kept, as well as the holy text of the Torah. My religion, my faith, is love. Wherever it beckons me, I follow. Sorry, I have kept you longer than I should have. I've enjoyed myself and I couldn't resist really. I would like to say thank you very much in one reason. Thank you. I think it, uh, in poetry and literature, really, the same way with religion, <laughs> you know, it's so, so related. You can only speak of your own experience. You see, to make sense. You can't say you must do this. You see what I mean? You must believe this. You say, me, this is my experience. Share it, share it. So, And this, you see, would not make us arrogant because how can I tell you what to believe? Who am I? God? Do I have this right? 
See, this is something we, that unfortunately, in the world today, where we, we have a lot of religious, what's it, religiosity, <laughs> but no religion. embarrassing questions. I love these because <laughs> these were, gives a chance to. May, may I thank you both for having read so beautifully, really. Thank you, Tony, very much, and thank you, Catherine. I, I, next week, of course, I will be talking about Khalid Gibran, and I hope uh, that you will be here next week if, uh, uh, because uh, Gibran has a special relationship with me. I I've been working on him for the last 50 years. I haven't written much on him, but perhaps the things that you feel most you can not write on very easily. But tonight, if you leave this room with a bit of love and affection for my people, I'll be grateful.